Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Imagine thinking about and working on the same project, the same thing, for over 30 years. That's how long Emma Donahue has, in some way or another, been working on her new book, Learned by Heart. Emma will be here to tell you about learning about this real-life childhood romance that captured her imagination, and why now, after all these years, now is the right time for this book to come out. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let me tell you a little bit about the plot of this new Emma Donahue book. Uh, Two 14-year-olds. It's 1805. They're in an attic at an all-girls school. They're in England, and they fall in love. I want to point out again, it's 1805. And the other twist is they're real. Like, the story is based on two actual young women from history. Anne Lister, who was this woman who was this, like, boundary-breaking lesbian who had an unbelievable life. We know that because she kept a diary that is five million words. The girl she fell in love with was this teenager named Eliza Rain, who was biracial. She was an orphan. She was living in British society at a time when um, we'll say that being a person of color was not easy at all. And as I mentioned, yeah, Emma's been working on this book for like three decades now. She came across the story of Anne Lister like 30 years ago, wrote her first play about it. Emma Donahue, if you don't know Emma, Irish-Canadian author, makes her home in London, Ontario, one of Canada's best-selling authors ever. You might know her novel Room, which is this global bestseller. It was also adapted into a movie, which won an Academy Award. And was put out 15 novels. And if they all have anything in common, um, it's that they're deeply, deeply, and I'll say it again, deeply researched, yet also they don't read like a textbook. They're also like this beautiful, heartfelt narrative about love. Anyway, so this novel, Learned by Heart, is the same kind of thing. Epic, emotional, and powerful. Emma Donahue joined me in studio to talk all about it. How are you? It's lovely to be back. I'm very well. I feel like every couple of years... You, you, you come in, and I, I couldn't be happier. I'd happily it. talk to you once a week if your producers would allow it. You know what? We can make it happen. You know, we get a little cot back there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cheapest real estate in Toronto, Emma. How are you? I'm very well. Congratulations on the book. I started reading it without knowing that these were real people. Good. I, you know, like most writers, I prefer the reader not to read the jacket and to just plunge in and, and learn things you know, line by line. Okay, because I felt like a real ignoramus afterwards, after... No, no, I mean, even, you know, okay, in the maybe 30 years that I've been fangirling about her, Anne Lister has come to be better known, but she's still a totally obscure figure. Can you do a little bit of work for us? Can you tell us who Anne Lister was, and then I'll ask you about the other character. Absolutely. She was a rule-breaking, self-educated, brilliant, gender non-conforming Yorkshire woman, 1791 to 1840, who left behind possibly the longest diary in the English language, about 5 million words. About 15% of that is in a secret code she devised to cover anything that she felt a bit private about, like, you know, her darning or her lack of money or her 12 affairs with the women of Yorkshire. And it's this astonishing document, which should have been 
published centuries ago in in multiple volumes, but because of all the lesbian sex, it wasn't. So mm. it's only available, it's just about available now in kind of raw transcriptions on the internet, courtesy of several hundred volunteer code breakers. So it's an amazing project, the, the kind of Anne Lister world, that it's the diary is finally reaching the public, um, courtesy of librarians and fans, basically fans who've become scholars. Um, Anne Lister, a very important cultural cultural figure. I would say so. She really, um, it was the most frank and honest and detailed diary. She had this, you know, uh, this obsessive interest in charting everything, you know, the, the temperature, the news from France, the uh, what she read last week, who said what to who at the garden party, her bowel movements. You know, she, she wrote everything down. And Eliza, Eliza Rain? Eliza Rain is the first of Anne Lister's loves and the most tragic and the most interesting. And I don't know why she has not been written about. Um, she was a biracial orphan heiress. So her English father, who worked for the East India Company, biggest corporation in the world, he sent her back or home as he would have called it, but she'd never been to England. He sent her off to England on the ship at the age of six. The journey took almost a year and he was totally cutting her off from her Indian side and her Indian mother. We don't even know her mother's name. She just turns up in his records, his financial records as Dr. Rain's woman. Yeah, that was minimal pension. Something common, something relatively common. back Very then, common. Right? These East India Company, Englishmen, um, they, they went out there, they made big money and they had lots of families. Um, you know, being married according to the custom of the country, meaning kind of informally married. And then uh, very often they sent the kids off to England. Um, in some cases, they even said to the mothers, I'll give you a pension if you let me take the kids. Uh-huh. You know, really unsavory aspect of colonialism. And there were hundreds and hundreds of these kids. And Eliza Rain and her sister were sent off to England. And Eliza ended up in this boarding school. And we don't know why, but somebody put her in the only two-girl room with the kind of, you know, rule-breaking tomboy um, Anne Lister truly and rule sparks break. flew. Yeah, truly rule-breaking. Like, you, you paint the picture right away that this was someone who came in no regard for authority, no regard for the conventions of Anne the Lister time. claimed that at her previous school she was beaten every day. And, you know, beating was very <laughs> rarely used in girls' school, but if anyone made the teachers pick up the whip, it would have been Anne Lister. Um, she just never saw a convention she didn't flout, really. Even though, like, she, she grew to be, once she was a landowner, she was quite a high Tory. Yeah. She used to go around and, and you know, um, put the metaphorical t- thumb screws on her on her tenants to vote Tory. You know, she didn't have a vote, but she forced theirs. Yeah. So at one point she was burned in effigy by the locals, not for her outrageous lesbianism, but for the political <laughs> pressure to vote Tory. But the great thing is at 14, I think there's no reason to assume she would have been an arch conservative. So I was in a way inventing a, a, an origin story for a superhero. Um, I, I was working out what she might have been like at 14 before she started the diary, before she did anything to make herself famous. Well, let, let's stay there then. Why, why was that interesting to you? Like of all the area, areas of Ann Lister's life, because since I, I, I read the book and since I got ready for this interview, I've learned a lot about Ann Lister. There was a lot of parts you could talk about. You could talk about those later years when she became an advocate for landowners. You could talk about her travels to Paris. You could talk about all those things. You chose to focus, I mean, for part of the book anyway, on uh, the relationship they had when their first romantic relationship at 14. Why was that what was interesting to you? It's the beginning. You know, uh, a a novel is is often very good at tracing what happens when a character changes. And in a way, later on, Anne Lister was very consistent. She had her habits like her, her diary keeping and her seducing of women and her traveling. Um, so I wanted to say, how did she turn into how did she turn into this extraordinary person who had this really confident sense of herself as having this exceptional identity? Like she was 
proud um, of, of being odd, of being different, of being queer. Uh, how did this happen? Yeah. And I think one way it happened is that she fell in love, she had this affair, and the two of them seem to have been this little kind of conspiracy of two. Like, you know, each of them feeling, I've, I've found the other, therefore this is right, this is not evil, God would approve of this. You know, they talked of each other, to, the, to each other as husband and wife. Mm. They planned to go off to Italy together as soon as Eliza came into her fortune at 21. But of course, there's seven long years between 14 and 21. And most people who fall in love at 14 change their mind before 21. So, you know, the affair did not last, but it was the it was the great drama of Eliza Rain's life. And for Anne Lister, it was what sort of started her on mm-hmm. her on her progress. I bet it was lovely to write about young love like that, 14-year-old love. And, you know, I put so much of my own memories of being 14 and falling in love into it. Because did with, you really? Yeah, the, that feeling of like, I mean, 1980s Catholic Ireland was not very different from early 19th century Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, it was the same so. feeling of, oh, no one has ever fallen in love with someone of the same sex before. Right. Am I the first? Am I a monster? Oh, but it feels so good. <laughs> so that sort of simultaneous heaven and hell vibe. And, you know, maybe every 14-year-old, when they first fall in love, there's that feeling of like, whoa, this is an unprecedented state I find myself in and I'm crying, but also I'm happy. I mean, that that moment when you, your, your soul kind of catches fire. So I really tried to capture that. And luckily I had a, a teenage girl in the house as well. As you know, I, I use my children a lot. So mm. I used to interrogate Una about like, you know, the kind of... Um, the sort of culture of the schoolyard, as it were, the kind of, you know, subtle little, um, you know, power plays about friendships and who's friends with who and who says what about who and the gossip and so on and the games. I love that there are similarities between what your youngsters going through at like at those that that's age and the era of like Instagram and, and, and texting and, and all that stuff that you even see parallels between that and what would have been happening in the early 1800s. Oh, the basic dynamics are the same. Like there's always been a form of gossip. There's always been like time wasting and time killing. And, you know, um, when they do get time off from the very, very boring schoolwork, which mostly consisted of just memorizing. One reason the book is called Learn by Heart is that they would have to just learn half a page from a dictionary Mm. before breakfast. Um, But then they they played parlor games a lot. And I really did a study of parlor games and realized that most of them are just there to make the person who doesn't understand what the game is feel stupid, you know, (laughs) or to, you know, have a circle and exclude someone from it. You know, the kind of um, musical chairs phenomenon of like, (laughs) it's never quite enough social cachet to go around. You know, somebody has to be excluded. And you might say we do that in the form of voting people off the island on TV nowadays. Yeah, you're right. Same dynamic. Yeah. And I love that scene in the book. It's pretty early on in the book where um, uh, Eliza and Anne, they they sort of help one another out in those moments of like parlor game social exclusion. I I, I love that. I even put in a scene where, you know, the girls have to get a vaccination and one of the girls is saying, my parents won't allow me to put something unnatural into my body. (laughs) Because that's, again, a fairly timeless social dynamic. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate you telling me, geez, you know, I, it's a personal thing, so it, it would be up to you to talk about, but I'm, I'm happy you, you brought it up, I suppose, is that uh, I, I didn't know, because I know 14 is a tender age, and I know friends of mine who have, who have come out have said to me, you know, either, Tom, I, I had the support system around me enough to be able to say I was gay at 14. Um, or more likely, they've said to me, because growing up in Newfoundland, they've said to me, oh, it was 14 when I knew. It was 14 when I started to kind of, I had my first sort of inkling. I sort of, and, and uh, 14 is the age of these characters here. And, and you said you saw yourself it was, in there It was there 14 bit. when I knew too. And the support system I had was literature. Yeah, I wasn't telling family. I wasn't telling friends. There was nothing around me in sort of Irish pop culture at the time that made it okay. But I had, you know, the poems of Emily Dickinson and I had... 
um, you know, just the occasional book I'd come across, often an import from America, tattered paperback like Ruby Fruit Jungle or something. Exciting. Yeah. Or, you know, a 1930s play. I, you know, I'd, and every little scrap I found made me think, OK, I have a tribe and we've always existed. Someday I'll get to meet them. You know, so books just saved my life. Um, and I think um, that's that's another sort of continuity, you know, that um, um, uh, Anne Lister say, you know, she, she she's raving about the, the novel Clarissa, which in her time would have been like, oh, you have to read this book. This book gets it right about friendship between girls. Um, so I think I think books have always had a life a life saving quality and more than ever, I think that in, in the era of, of such widespread book banning, you know, um, I, I mean, I've talked to publishers in the States who say that their sales have plummeted because librarians and teachers are afraid to order any book which could be accused of being woke and could be getting banned by the local by the local uh, school board. So um, so it's it's funny how still relevant these dynamics are. I mean, the books that in, in many ways saved your life or the books that made you help, the kind of books we could say that... Uh, helped you find your tribe, as you say, that helped you feel a little bit less alone in in this time. These are the types of books you're saying that uh, uh, librarians aren't wanting to bring in, that booksellers aren't just selling. Yeah. And, you know, I, even 10 years ago, I would have thought like, oh, you know, progress is moving naturally upwards. We're past all that. But no, it feels like there's been such a backlash. So oddly enough, to, to write a, a fairly simple love story about two girls falling for each other uh, feels quite political right now, especially in the American context. We'll be right back. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Can I talk to you a little bit about the process? You, you, you talked about it earlier, but I'm I'm fascinated by this. So Anne Lister's diary is five million words. She just, you know, she liked to be thorough. She was a completist, so she would chart everything. Um, she uh, also kept. Um, like reading journals about her reading. She kept specifically travel journals as well. Um, she would take notes on every lecture she went to at the local society. Uh, she was just tireless. Um, and she was, oh, she, she was the first to climb certain mountains as well. She was quite sporty, really. Um, so it's an astonishing document, which should have been published a long time ago. But because it's at the sort of center of the Venn diagram of women's history and queer history, you mm-hmm. know, it just never was published. So in a way, the fans have, have got in on the act and, and by, by learning how to break the code and signing up um, for a project that was funded, by the way, by Sally Wainwright, the screenwriter and director of, um, of Gentleman Jack. Sally Wainwright put the screenwriting prize she won directly into uh, digitizing those 
diaries and then the fans signed up in their hundreds um, calling themselves Lister Sisters to to transcribe the pages one by one. So you don't usually get fans actually helping with an archive in this way. Usually there's an archive and then there's maybe a TV showrunner who kind of popularises it and then there's the fans passively receiving it. But in this case, the fans are actually helping get the research done. So it's an amazing kind of feedback loop that's only possible through things like, you know, um, Twitter and Facebook and other forms of social media. So I'm having a good word to say Jeez. about social media. I was about to say that's the first good word I've heard about <laughs> social media from either of us in a very long time. History has been so benefited by the internet. You know, I, suppose, I mean, yeah. the, the genealogical databases, the, uh, you know, trawling through obscure newspapers to find little articles. It's amazing. How much of this did you go through, the five million? Um, I've read a lot of them, but not all, because I was wanting to write this novel about, um, you know, a time before the diary began. I I didn't want to just be, you know, fictionalizing something that was already well documented. I wanted the challenge of writing about the, the time before. But but didn't wasn't the Eliza and Anne section of the diary was that the part that was written in code? Some of that was written in code. Oh, Anne started the diary and in her in her the surviving diary in her 20s. Um, so she's only ever mentioning Eliza in retrospect, like, oh, I paid a visit to poor Eliza. I brought her some cakes. You know, Eliza clearly had a very sweet tooth. So there are just these little tantalizing references. Or every now and then, Anne would record telling some new girlfriend about her first girlfriend. But um, from the time that Anne and Eliza were in school together, we um, have, uh, you know, no letters between them, say. And we have a couple of letters that Eliza wrote to Anne's mother. And one of them, she actually says, you know, I feel about her the way a husband and a wife would feel about each other. Um, so, so we have, you know, a, a few sources, but we don't have anything full. We'd, we're not even sure, um, you know, who was at the school first or how long they were there for or why they left when. Um, so mostly what I have is later sources. And the best source for me was about um, 100 letters between Anne and Eliza, like later on in their late teens and early 20s. And I couldn't get these letters, but, um, you know, 14 volunteers uh, transcribed them for me. For just you. as a favor. Just, just... To help me out. What does that mean to you? I'm so touched. This novel really is in some sense crowdsourced. You know, I mean, I've always had academics be be very helpful to me. um, But I've never had 14 strangers like do a lot of work Mm. to supply me with, you know, priceless sources that I couldn't get to otherwise. Again, on Twitter, I reached out to one particular genealogist in, in, she lives in at the Wilds of Ireland um, and um, called San Ricken. And I asked her a query. And then for the next year, I bugged her with further <laughs> queries because she's just better than anyone I know at finding sources and checking details. So, you know, she reads things like wills or, you know, shipping registers. Um, she she found me a letter from one of the real teachers at Analyzer's school. Um, you know, the single remaining document of this woman's life is a letter that um, she happened to write to an Irish playwright she knew, so it ended up in his biography. And this letter describes the school. It describes how there was a pig living in one of the rooms on the property. I would never have thought to invent the pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and this letter also describes how the teacher and her woman partner moved up from London for her job. So I was like, oh, my God, she's got a teacher in a lesbian relationship. Again, I would not have invented that. It seems far too on the nose. <laughs> but there it is in the sources. I feel like you have a proclivity towards diaries. It's true. I find them a very useful source. Um, I've only kept one myself from, I think, 14 to 19. Okay. Um, and I wrote it, you know, it was one of these 
page per day and I wrote three lines per line because I had a lot to say about falling in love at 14. And so it was very difficult to read. But I, I did go back and, and mine it for, for my second novelhood. Um, and I do think a diary is a very good practice for a writer, you know, like chewing over every situation and kind of trying things on for size. Ultimately, I stopped keeping the diary because I found it was making me a bit self-conscious in my actual behavior, my living, because I'd sometimes have a conversation and I'd deliberately say something rather noble, <laughs> thinking I'll write that in later. So I think at 19, when life sped up a bit and I was out of school, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to be sort of watching myself as I live. I love that you were a creator of narrative even then. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the perfect moment and exactly. write it down. Yeah, I'm gonna live Here's it. the moral high ground. <laughs> yeah. I read your piece you wrote now. I can't remember who it was for, but about your mom. Your mom kept a diary. Is that right? She, she did. She wouldn't have called them diaries. She 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 would just have said, oh, that's my, my agenda, you know. And she'd write in things like, you know, hairdresser 2 p.m. But then she'd score through and she'd say, too busy. One of the kids said chicken box didn't get to it. You know, So it became a kind of a very minimal what happened each day. And she left these all to me. And she said to me, you can do what you like with them after I'm gone. And they are so poignant. Like, you know, as she got dementia, for instance, they, they trail off. So it's down to just a word at a time. Oh, my God. But I read them um, in, in, in reverse order because I decided, you know, Given that I know they end in dementia, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the magic of reading it backwards. Oh. So my mother with dementia will gradually kind of become my fully eloquent mother again. And then there she is at 20 as a flight attendant, you know, um, just, you know, traveling for the first time. So I found them such a wonderful source to go to. I felt I had my, my mother back again. That's, That's why I was wondering if you, if you kept one now. I wondered if you, your own kids would, you know... I'm too busy with the actual books, I think. <laughs> it, would, it would eat into my time for the for the books. And also, I suppose my fictions have, they don't tend to draw on my daily life. Like, I'm in this horribly happy relationship, right? Chris and I have been together <laughs> nearly 30 years, yeah. so it doesn't provide much material. Right. And I say that in the best way. <laughs> no, it would be hard to make an interesting narrative out of 30 years of happiness. <laughs> um, well, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate your time. I've got a couple questions left for you here. Um, 25, 30 years from the sort of the inception of thinking about writing this book to, to writing it. How did you feel when you actually got the last line out? Oh, so relieved. So relieved. Um, because I did, yeah, this one had been hanging around a long time, partly because I didn't know exactly how to write it. You know, sometimes basic questions like who the point of view of a book is take me a long time to solve and I can only write the book once I've solved them. And in this case, um, you know, there were obvious pitfalls both ways um, because, uh, you know, who, who am I to manage to put together a voice and a consciousness for this biracial woman living in England in the early 19th century? I felt daunted by that. But on the other hand, I thought if I don't use Eliza's point of view, then I'm just presenting her as the exoticized other again. I'm yeah. like, ooh, look at that glamorous figure in the yeah. corner. So then I thought, well, I'll, I'll maybe alternate between the points of view of Anne and Eliza. But when I started that, I found that the Eliza sections were interesting me far more because she's she's the mystery. She's the she's the one who's been forgotten, whereas Anne Lister has had her say in many forms, you know, including um, her diaries and, and the TV show, Gentleman Jack. So, so ultimately, it ended up being Eliza's book. So that's the kind of decision... Um, that takes a long time. Um, but also, as I say, that the state of sort of Anne Lister studies has, has um, you know, come to fruition so much just in recent years. And there's so many more people helping to, to find the facts. Um, so I'm glad I didn't write it till now. 
Um, let me close off this way. I, I was hoping you might tell a story that I, I heard you talk about um, when it comes to, to Anne Lister. Um, because I, I, I think people are already sort of very compelled by the book. I think by virtue that you wrote it, it's very compelling. But also, you know, the, the, the story even already is so compelling. But um, I, read, I read this thing you wrote where you said, Anne, Anne Lister changed my life. And when I read that, I thought, oh, well, she found inspiration for her book. Isn't that great? You know, and oh, you know, she she saw somebody in her, you know, blah, blah, blah. She really did. She really set you on a path. Can you tell that story? Sure. Um, I was um, about 20, I think, um, and I was writing contemporary fiction because I thought that's what you do. You know, you, you write about your life experience, write what you know. So um, not that I knew much, but I was writing <laughs> contemporary fiction, drawing on my very limited life so far. And then uh, to get out of the rain, I ducked into a bookshop and I came across the first volume of Anne Lister diary excerpts called I Know My Own Heart. And, you know, I was just suddenly obsessed with this unique woman and her frank voice. And um, I, I wrote my first play as a free adaptation of that diary. And through publishing that play, I got my agent, who I've been with ever since. And then I started puzzling over how Anne Lister could possibly have developed such a sort of proud sense of being different by by the early 1800s. And so I wrote my first nonfiction book, working out what she might have read. So that was a, a study of sort of, you know, 18th century publications on lesbian themes called I know um, called Passions Between Women, um, and so you know she 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 set me on this course of delving into the past, and I think the reason I write say historical fiction today is because Anne Lister kind of pulled me off that track of just write what you know. She was like you know, you know write what you do not know, but you know you can work hard to discover. Um, so I found her inspiring. And I, one reason it took me so long to write this novel was I thought, well, I don't go back. You know, I, I wrote my first play about her, but I'm not going to go back. But actually, I couldn't quite forget her, much like her dozen lovers. You know, <laughs> typically remained preoccupied with her for a long, long time. So I'm just one of the many women who has fallen under Anne Lister's spell. Emma Donahue, thanks for coming in. It's been fun. My guest was the writer Emma Donahue. Her new novel... It's called Learned by Heart. I always love talking to Emma. That book is out now. Well, that's it for the show this week. I just want to, um, I, I did this in the credits for the radio show, but I want to make sure I do it here. Not only do I want to shout out everybody uh, on, on Q who makes the show possible and makes me sound passable, but I also want to shout out everybody at CBC Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't know if you have been able to tell, but I have been here all week. I don't know if my accent is different, um, but I've been here all week uh, doing the show from home. Uh, so thanks to everybody at CBC Newfoundland, everyone at CBC St. John's for making making that possible. The other episode we have up today is my conversation with the music video director turned film director Grant Singer. He's made uh, music videos for folks like Ariana Grande and The Weeknd, and now his first ever feature film is number one on Netflix. Uh, he's got he's got something figured out, and we're going to find out what it is. Uh, you can find that wherever you get this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.